0: Chapters 31 through 33 of Atlantis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 31. This strange incident of meeting, seeing, loving, and parting forever had passed swiftly as in a dream. Since Wilhelm had not yet returned, Frederick, long after his visitor had fled, went out on deck, where the exalted impression of the starry heavens shining over the infinite expanse of the ocean purified him, as it were. He was neither by nature nor by habit a Don Juan, and it astonished him that the unusual, surprising adventure seemed the most natural thing in the world. The deck was empty. Another boy was on guard in Pander's place. The temperature had sunk to below freezing point, and a thick coating of hoarfrost lay on the rigging. As he stood leaning over the railing, he had a painful vision of the sum total of life and death within the eons of life on earth. His innermost being smarted with the pain of it. Death must have existed before the beginning. Death and death. That was the limit, he thought, of vast sums of trouble, hope, desire, enjoyment, enjoyment which forthwith consumed itself to make way for renewed desire, for illusions of possession, for realities of loss, for anguish, for conflicts, for meetings and partings, all uncontrollable processes bound up with suffering and fresh suffering and suffering again. It gave him some satisfaction to assume that now that the passage was so smooth, his Deborah and all her companions in suffering were probably lying wrapped in unconscious sleep, for a time relieved of the great madness of life. While waiting for Dr. Wilhelm, absorbed in these reflections, Frederick involuntarily turned away from the edge of the deck and became aware of a dark mass not far from the smokestack, cowering in a corner against the wall. The thing looked strange to him. On stepping closer, he saw it was a man on the floor asleep, wrapped in his overcoat, with his cap drawn over his eyes, his bearded head resting on a low camp chair. Frederick was convinced it was Achleitner. Why was he lying there in the freezing cold instead of in bed? Frederick found the right answer not more than three paces away was the door of ingigerd's cabin and he was the faithful dog in three senses the watchdog, the cerberus the dog crazed with the rabies of jealousy poor fellow frederick said aloud poor stupid achleitner he felt genuine almost tender sympathy and over him came all the woe of the deceived lover as we can trace it from Nietzsche and Schopenhauer down to Buddha Gotama, whose pupil, Ananda, asks, Master, how shall we comport ourselves toward a woman? Quoth the Master, Avoid the sight of her, Ananda, because a woman's being is hidden. It is unfathomable as the way of the fish in the water. To her, lying is as truth and truth as lying. St what are you doing here?' said Dr. Wilhelm, stepping up softly. He was carrying something in his hands, carefully wrapped up. "'Do you know who's lying here?' said Frederick. "'It's Achleitner.' "'He wanted to keep his eye on that cabin,' Wilhelm remarked cynically, "'to limit the attendance. "'We must wake him up.' "'Why?' said Wilhelm. "'Later, when we go to bed.' "'I'm going to bed now. "'Come to my cabin first for a moment.' "'In his cabin the physician laid a human embryo on the table. "'She has attained her end,' he said, "'meaning the girl traveling second class, "'who, in his opinion, had taken the trip for no other purpose "'than to rid herself of her burden and avoid disgrace. "'At the sight of the little object, "'Frederick did not know whether to be born or never to awaken to life, was preferable. He went out on deck again, aroused Achleitner, and led him to his cabin, resisting and mumbling incomprehensible words through half-sleep. Then, in dread of the agonies of insomnia, he went to his own cabin. 32. He fell asleep immediately, but when he awoke it was only two o'clock. The ship was still moving easily, and he could hear the screw working regularly under the water. Life in times of great physical crises is a fever which traveling and sleeplessness enhance. Frederick well knew his own nature, and was alarmed when he saw himself robbed of the peace of sleep after so short a time. But had his sleep actually meant peace? Lying on his back with wide, staring eyes, he saw vast nocturnal spaces of his soul opened up, where, in bottomless depths, another chaotic life had been born, a multitude of tormenting visions in which things and persons most familiar had arisen in combination with things and persons entirely strange. He tried to recall his dreams. He had dreamed he was wandering, hand in hand with Achleitner among the dark-smoke widows, trailing backward over the ocean from the funnels of the Roland, far, far away. He and the Russian Jewess, together with great difficulty, dragged the dead stoker, Zickelmann, up into the blue lady's parlor, and by means of a serum, which he himself had discovered, he brought him back to life. He smoothed over a quarrel between the Russian Jewess and Ingegerd Hallström, who fought and called each other abusive names. He was sitting with Dr. Wilhelm in his cabin, and, as Wagner once had done, was observing a homunculus still undergoing embryonic development in a glass sphere on which light was shining. At the same time Ingegerd's cockatoo was squawking in Arthur Stoss's voice, and continually asseverating, "'I am already a man of absolutely independent fortune. "'I am touring simply to bring my fortune up to a certain amount.' Under the impression that he was recalling these things to his memory, Frederick was really dreaming again. Suddenly he started up, cuffing Hans Fühlenberg furiously and saying, "'I'll box your ears.' Shortly afterward he was in the smoking-room, delivering a crushing sermon for the third or fourth time, morally felling to the ground the man who had desecrated his sacred relation to Ingegerd. But the captain came in, and said they had to bury the stoker. There was a dead man on board. When Frederick stepped from the smoking-room, he saw the corpse lying in the coffin. It was not Zickelmann, the stoker, but Angel his suffering, neglected wife, in one of her hysterical attacks in which she lay in a trance. And it was not at the entrance to the smoking-room, but in Plassenberg in the Heuscheuer, in front of his comfortable house. Captain von Kessel was standing in the garden clipping a privet hedge. It was at night, but a full moon was shining bright as day over the lonely valley meadows in front of his house. Angel arose, and frederick went to lead her into the house she resisted now the consciousness of his spiritual separation from her filled him with infinite sadness a sadness more bitter and profound than any that had ever inspired him in his waking moments i am a mother said angèle but not by you he embraced her weeping and wanted to draw her into his house she resisted gently but firmly, and declared she was forbidden to enter. He saw her wandering across the meadows in the moonshine, slowly and wearily. Angel, he cried. He ran after her. "'It is so hard for me,' she said, "'because life and not death has robbed me of you.' Frederick groaned aloud. A great stone seemed to be lying on his breast." He heard the rushing of waters. He saw the flood come leaping through all the valleys, over the tops of all the hills, wave upon wave, from all sides. The moon was shining. He saw Angèle climb to a little skiff lying moored somewhere, and the tide carried away the skiff with her in it. The waters overwhelmed his house. Again the wandering began, hand in hand with Achleitner and the smoke-widows across the ocean desert. Again began that difficult dragging upstairs and downstairs of the naked, dead stoker, with the help of the young admirer of Kropotkin. The dispute between Ingigerd and Deborah, his sermonizing of Füllenberg, and the man in the smoking-room repeated themselves, each repetition intensifying his torment. The homunculus in the glass sphere in Dr. Wilhelm's cabin appeared again. It developed with light thrown on it. In his anguish, in his impotence against that martyrizing chase of visions, Frederick's persecuted soul, gasping for peace, suddenly rose in revolt, and he said aloud, Kindle the light of reason, O God in heaven! He rose in his berth and saw that Rosa, the servant girl, was in reality holding a burning candle over him. She bent down slightly and said, "'You're dreaming hard. "'Aren't you feeling well, Dr. von Kammacher?' The door creaked. The servant girl Rosa had left. The ship was moving quietly. Or was he mistaken? Was the Roland no longer proceeding so calmly and steadily as before? He listened intently and heard the screw whirring regularly under water. Monotonous calls penetrated from the deck. Then came the loud rattling of the cinders pouring overboard. Frederick looked at his watch. It was five o'clock. So three hours had passed since he had first awakened. Again, with a clatter and a thunder, a load of ashes slid into the Atlantic Ocean. Was it not the mates of the dead stoker Zickelman who were throwing it overboard? Frederick heard the crying of children, thereupon the sobbing and whimpering of his hysterical neighbour, and finally Rosa's voice, trying to quiet Siegfried and Ella, who was a talkative little girl. Siegfried was fretfully begging to be taken back to his grandmother in Lückenwalde. Mrs. Liebling was scolding Rosa, telling her she was responsible for the children's behavior. Frederick heard her say, You all trample about on my nerves. I wish the three of you were at the bottom of the sea. For heaven's sake, let me sleep. 33. Notwithstanding all these impressions, Frederick fell asleep again. He dreamed that he and Rosa, the maid, and little Siegfried Liebling were in a lifeboat rocking on a calm, shimmering, green sea. Strangely enough, there was a mass of gold ingots in the bottom of the boat, probably the gold ingots that the Roland was supposed to be carrying to the Mint in Washington. Frederick was at the helm, and after cruising about a while, they reached a bright, cheery port. It may have been a port in the Azores, or the Madeira Islands, or the Canary Islands. At a short distance from the quay, Rosa jumped overboard and reached land holding Siegfried clear of the water. People received them, and they disappeared in one of the snowy white buildings at the harbor front. When Frederick landed, to his joy he was greeted on the marble steps of the quay by his old friend, Peter Schmidt, the physician he intended to visit in America. In response to curious questions, he always said that this was his main purpose in crossing the ocean. His delight at seeing him in a dream, in the setting of the white tropical town, after a separation of eight or nine years, was a surprise to himself. How was it possible that he had only occasionally and superficially remembered so magnificent a man, so dear a youthful companion? Peter Schmidt was a Frisian. He and Frederick had sat together on the same school bench. Later they had spent two years together in the gymnasium at St. Magdalene at Breslau, and several semesters in the universities of Greifswald, Breslau, and Zurich. Owing to a combination of common sense, many-sided knowledge, and humanitarian enthusiasm, Peter Schmidt had exerted a great influence on his friends. There was also an adventurous streak in his nature, inherited from his father, a Frisian colonist, who lay buried in a churchyard in Meriden, Connecticut. "'It is good that you have come,' said Peter Schmidt. Frederick felt as if he had been long expecting him. "'Your wife Angel has just arrived in a skiff.' His friend silently led him to an inn near the harbour a sense of security such as he had never before felt came over him. While he took a little luncheon in the dining-room, where the host, a German, stood opposite, twirling his thumbs, Peter Schmidt explained, "'The town is not large, but it will give you an idea of the country. You will find people here that are contented and have made their last landing.' It was taken as a matter of course that there, in that strange silent city in the dazzling sunlight, the fewest possible words were to be spoken. Some new mute inner sense appeared to make meanings clear. Nevertheless, Frederick said, "'I've always taken you for the mentor in unknown depths of our predestination,' by which he meant to express his awe at his friend's mysterious being." Yes, said Peter Schmidt, but this is only a small beginning, though enough to indicate what is hidden under the surface here. Peter Schmidt, born in Tondern, now led Frederick out to the harbor. It was a very small harbor. There were a number of ancient vessels lying half sunk in the water. 1492, said Peter Schmidt. That was the year, the 400th anniversary of which was being much discussed by the Americans on board the Roland. The Frisian pointed to both the half-submerged caravels and explained that one of them was the Santa Maria, Christopher Columbus's flagship. "'I came over with Christopher Columbus,' he said. All this was unqualifiedly enlightening to Frederick nor was there anything enigmatic in Peter Schmidt's explanation that the wood of those slowly decaying caravels was called legno santo and was used for fuel because it contained the spirit of knowledge. Farther out to sea lay a third vessel, with a great black breach forward on the port side. "'It sank,' said the Frisian. "'It brought in a great lot of people.' Frederick looked at the vessel. He was dissatisfied. He would have liked to ask questions about the unfamiliar, yet curiously familiar ship out there at sea, but the Frisian left the harbor and turned into a narrow, crooked street with a steep flight of stairs. Here an old uncle of Frederick, who had been dead more than fifteen years, came toward him comfortably puffing at a pipe. "'He had just arisen, it seemed, from a bench by the open entrance to his house. "'How do you do?' he said. "'We're all here, my boy.' "'Frederick knew whom the old man meant when he said, "'We are all here.' "'We fare very well,' the old man, who in his lifetime "'had not been exactly favoured by fortune, continued, grinning. "'I didn't get along so well when I was up with you in the dismal air.' "'In the first place, my boy, we have the leño santo.' "'With his pipe he pointed to the dark interior of his house, "'where blue tongues of flame were leaping on the hearth. "'And, besides, we have the toilers of the light. "'But I am detaining you. "'We have time, but you must hurry.' "'Frederick said good-bye. "'Fiddlesticks!' exclaimed his uncle. Do you people down there still keep up that tiresome business of how-do-you-do-and-goodbye? Climbing higher up the street, Peter Schmidt led Frederick through a number of houses and inside courtyards. In one of the courtyards with many corners, reminding Frederick of certain ancient sections of Hamburg and Nuremberg, there was a ship-chandlery bearing the sign, The Sea-Going Ship. "'Everything here looks quite ordinary,' said Peter Schmidt. "'but we have all the ancient models.' He pointed to the small model of an ancient vessel standing in the little window of the chandlery among packages of chewing tobacco and leather whips. "'Ships, ships, nothing but ships!' The sight of this last vessel seemed to produce the beginning of a slight gnawing resistance in Frederick's brain." He knew he was looking upon an all-embracing symbol which he had never before seen. With a new sense-organ, with centralized clarity of thought, he realized that, here, in this little model, was comprehended all the wandering and adventuring of the human soul. "'Oh,' said the Chandler, opening the glass door of the little shop, at which all sorts of wares, hanging on the door, swung to and fro with a clatter. "'Oh, you here, Frederick. "'I thought you were still at sea.' Frederick recognized the Chandler as George Rasmussen, whose farewell letter he had received in Southampton. He was dressed in a shabby cap and dressing-gown belonging to a confectioner long dead whom he had known when a boy. Mysterious as it all was, there was yet something natural in this meeting with his friend. The little shop was alive with goldfinches. "'They are the goldfinches,' Rasmussen explained, "'that settled in the Hoyschauer Mountains last winter, you know, "'and were fatal to me.' "'Yes, I remember,' said Frederick. "'We would approach a bare branch or tree, "'and suddenly it would seem to shake itself "'and scatter thousands of gold leaves.' We interpreted it as auguring mountains of money. Well, said the Chandler, it was precisely thirteen minutes past one on the twenty-fourth of January when I drew my last breath. I had just received your telegram from Paris absolving me from my debt. Back there in the shop, among other things, is my predecessor's fur coat which, I am by no means complaining, infected me. I wrote you that, if I could, I would make myself noticeable from the beyond. Well, here I am. But even here, everything isn't perfectly clear and plain, though I am feeling better, and we all rest in a pleasant sense of basic security. I'm glad you and Peter Schmidt have met. He counts for a lot here in this country. You will meet each other above again in New York, at the celebration of the 400th anniversary of 1492. Good Lord! Of what significance, after all, is that little discovery of America? Rasmussen, in his strange disguise, removed the miniature vessel from the show window. It, too, was called the Santa Maria. Now please be careful, he said. Frederick noticed that the old confectioner took one vessel after another of the same sort, but diminishing in size from the first one. Patience, he said, while still pulling more and more vessels from the entrails of the Santa Maria. The procedure caused Frederick no slight astonishment. Patience, the smaller are always the better ones. If I had time, we should reach the smallest, the final the most glorious work of Providence. Each one of these ships carries us not only beyond the boundaries of our planet, but even beyond the limited barriers of our senses. Each of them is adapted to carry us across the border. If you're interested, he continued, I have other wares in my shop. Here are the captain's hedge scissors. Here is a plummet with which one can sound the lowest depths of the firmament and the Milky Way. Here are the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. But you have no time, and I won't detain you. The Chandler closed the glass door on them, but they saw him with his nose flattened against the pane, mysteriously, as if he still had something to sell, holding his finger to his mouth, shaped like a carp's his lips seemed to be framing certain words. Frederick understood legno santo, toilers of the light, and even what his uncle had said about up with you in the dismal air. But Peter Schmidt thrust his fist through the glass door, pulled Rasmussen's embroidered cap off his head, took from it a little key, and beckoned Frederick to come away with him. They left the houses behind, and stepped out into the open, rolling country. "'The thing is,' said Peter, "'it will mean a lot of trouble.' And they ran and climbed for hours. Evening fell. They lit a fire, and slept in a tree rocking in the wind. Morning came. They took to wandering again until the sun lay low on the horizon— Finally, Peter opened a small gate in a low wall. On the other side of the wall was a garden. A gardener was tying vines. "'How do you do, doctor?' he said. "'The sun is setting, but we know why we die.'" On looking at him more closely, Frederick recognized the dead stoker in the man, whose face was illuminated by the rosy flush of the setting sun and wore a friendly smile as he stood there in what was a strange garden, or vineyard, or fairyland. "'I'd rather be doing this than shoveling coal,' said the stoker, pointing to the cords hanging in his hands, with which he had been tying up the vines. The three of them together now walked a rather long distance to a wild section of the garden, where it had turned completely dark. The wind began to rush, and the shrubs, trees, and bushes of the garden swished like breakers on the shore. The stoker beckoned to them, and they squatted on the ground in a circle. It seemed as if the stoker, with his bare hand, had taken a bit of burning wood from his pocket. He held it close to the ground to illuminate a round opening, something like the burrow of a marmot or a rabbit. "'Leño Santo,' said Peter Schmidt pointing to the glowing piece of charcoal. Now, Frederick, you'll get to see those ant-like little elves that are called Noctilucci, or nightlights. They pompously call themselves toilers of the light, but, whatever their name, it must be admitted that they are the ones that take the light hidden in the entrails of the earth, store it up, and sow it in fields, the soil of which has been especially prepared and when it has grown to its full size and has borne fruit a hundredfold in the shape of gold sheaves or nuggets, they harvest it and save it for the darkest of dark times. And, actually, looking through a crevice, Frederick saw something like another world, with a subterranean sun shining on it. A multitude of little elves, the toilers of the light, were mowing with scythes, cutting stocks, binding sheaves, loading carts, and storing in barns. Many cut the light out of the ground like nuggets of gold. Undoubtedly, it was the gold meant for the mint in Washington that was haunting Frederick's dreams. "'These toilers of the light,' said the Frisian Peter Schmidt, "'are the most stimulating to my ideas.' At this point Frederick awoke, while the voice of the stoker close beside him was saying, Many will soon be following me. End of section 13